So um, my mom says, uh, tell Demir I say hi. Hi, mom. <laughs> and um, and also she's like, Shaddy, uh, make sure you don't... Cuss. Yes. Okay. Because she's, she's literally downstairs because I'm yeah. home again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know this, but I don't know if our listeners do. Yeah. Okay. I'll they try. know now. They do. <laughs> so, you know, uh, uh, why does writing feel good? And you know, here's a, here's a, here's, a, here's an even uh, a related one. I feel that the fact that writing feels good means that it's sinful. What do you think of that, Shadi? Whoa, you you're really coming out with guns blazing. Guns blazing. I don't know. It's been on my mind. Like it doesn't feel good. You know what I mean? It's like people talk about about like working out as somehow, you know, making people. It makes people somehow. I don't know what. Makes them high. That working out never did that for me. Working out just always makes me feel terrible, which makes me think it's virtuous. Whereas writing, it's hard and not fun in the throes of it, but then it feels good, like in the way that people say running should feel huh. after you've like run a marathon, which must mean it's not it's 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 bad, right? Because huh, if 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 the world rewards you with good feelings, like if you're, you know, doing illicit drugs or something, it's clearly bad. What do you think of that? Uh, well, it's it, it's interesting you bring this up because literally I started. Um, remember this? Uh, it's supposed to be this big, grand, definitive essay that I've been hyping up for a while. Yeah. That may or may not ever get written. Yeah. So I I, I tried my hand at writing the first paragraph earlier today, and it felt good. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it is good, but it certainly felt good. Right. Well, that's all you can ask. It's probably a crappy paragraph. How often do you rewrite? I, I usually try not to. I usually try to write all the way through. And then? Then you just send it off to the editor and be like, here, no, I mean, you deal with it. <laughs> if I'm in a rush, I'll, I usually I'll, take a, I'll have a once-over before I send just to make sure everything's in order. I try not to restructure too much. I mean, obviously, I'll wait to hear back from the editor and maybe do some more changes after that. But on, on you know, on your bigger point, um, so well, I mean, this is fascinating, and even as a smaller point, I mean, that's yeah, just, really, that's not how I work at all. Oh, well, how do you do it? Well, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I well, so do you, do you just like write straight through? So now you've written one paragraph, and you won't you won't revisit that. Maybe you'll look at it once more before you send it to the editor. I'll just keep on writing. Yeah, I mean, um, so. I don't usually do outlines. Um, I oh, don't no. usually have a clear sense of what I'm going to write before I write it. Yeah. For me, the key thing is just to be in the moment and to just you know let it flow. And I'll I'll maybe do some editing for each paragraph as I'm writing it. To you know, so, but I, I I try not to go back too much. Yeah, I mean, you're a successful author. How many you know when you're writing a book? Um, how many words a day? I mean, I've heard. Uh, my colleague Richard Aldis talk about, you know, he's written several books and uh, he's a historian and, you know, uh, he seems to be writing a, a new book every other year, more or less. And, you know, by the time he's done all the archival research and he has it all mapped out, he says he gets up in the morning and he knows he has a thousand words in him every day. And, you know, like just gets up, does it gets those thousand words out. And then another trick I, I, I heard from him, I, I mean, I've, I've never I've never attempted this. It's to uh, end in mid-sentence for the next day. And oh, then, that's smart. Yeah. Huh. Wow. I like that. Um, yeah. So, well, keep in mind that um, there was a golden age of productivity in my life. Yeah. Book-wise. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, tell me about it. We don't have, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, unless you've no, forgotten. Look. It's been so far, far in the past, you've forgotten what it was like. No, look, I mean... I, I, I feel like I'm still productive, but I think book writing is a different kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, uh, there's been a little bit of, of, of a gap. I haven't had a book out in the last uh, two years. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I, oh, I just, I just sort of, it just sort of hit me right now that I've never really promoted um, my book or my books on this podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> wow. I, I imagine what kind of monster. I'm a monster. Are you a monster for not promoting? Or you're, yeah. I mean, I feel most people that that already know you are like know you're on the back of your book, right? That's true. That, yeah. So for that book, um, I wrote uh, 
so it's called Islamic exceptionalism. Yes. How the struggle over Islam is reshaping the world. In the so show notes. Came, So uh, I wrote most of that in 2015, and it came out in late 2016. And What was the process? I remember that I had this amazing spurt of energy and focus where for about 60 days out of 80 days in 2015, I wrote a thousand words a day. In those 80 days, I basically had a good chunk of the book. So 60 days times a thousand words per day is 60,000. Yeah. So, like, when you think about it that way, you can actually get a lot of book writing done in a short period of time as long as you commit yourself to writing uh, a thousand words. But so, and, so yeah. was it was it was it um, uh, a spurt of of energy and creativity, or did you just commit yourself to a thousand words a day? I, I committed myself, but I remember it being effortless. I mean, I mean, maybe this is me. Um, creating that narrative in retrospect. But from what I do recall, I, I remember it not being as hard as my first book, which I do remember as being a bit more of a labor mm. to actually write write it. Um, and so it felt almost magical. Like when you're in that zone and it's just coming out, and I remember feeling very good and I was building momentum and it felt like it was coming together pretty quickly so that was great. And I think that because I remember that as being so effortless, it sort of raises the stakes next time around that will it be as um, as fluid as it was the last time? Is it and, is that like a barrier? Like you feel like until you get in the zone, you're I, is that like psychologically blocking you? A yeah, bit? well, I mean, you know, if I have to write something now, sometimes it doesn't come naturally and I have to force myself, but that doesn't feel great. And I don't know if that's what produces my best work. But, you know, if you have a deadline, you have a deadline. Yeah. But I definitely prefer to be passionate about what I'm writing and to really feel, I, you know, I mean, it's not like um, like I was a, ves- a vessel for some divine spirit, mm. but um, which is how I suppose some like novelists have described, um, you know, writing. Uh, or maybe I'm just imagining that. <laughs> no, I mean I don't know, divine spirit or vessel, but I mean I, I it's more like the zone. I mean, like I the think... words just come out of you. Yeah, yeah they're just yeah. there. It's a is it you know, um, and that's so the problem is I think in our line of work is that I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel sometimes that if I'm not enjoying what I'm doing or I'm not passionate about what I'm writing, yeah, I feel like it's very hard. To, to do things. To do things outside of writing or? No, to write. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. hard to write if you're not excited and passionate. Um, and which is why I don't like writing things that I don't like writing about. <laughs> I, yeah, try to, yeah. I try to focus on, you know, but I don't know. I, I It's sort of, um, it, this is also a reminder that I almost never talk about my writing process publicly. I don't want to give away too many secrets. Oh, come on. Give them away to me. No one's also <laughs> listening. It's just me and you here, buddy. <laughs> That's true. Well, actually, it's not. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know. But to get, I, I think your your um, your original point is really interesting because um, you know, is it sinful because we enjoy it? I mean, and, you know, you, you know me and sin. I, I really was kind of joking, but promoting, prompting you in any case. Yeah. Well, I mean. I definitely feel very good after the fa- after the fact. I mean, I do feel pressure when I'm in the moment in the sense that every new piece of writing, there's a certain set of expectations there. I mean, you want to deliver something good. Yep. I mean, I can do some I can usually write something very quickly that is satisfying, but that's I I hold I try to hold myself to a higher standard. I don't try to just put out. I know a lot of people just you know they have to write something on a pretty regular basis. They'll just sometimes put some shit out. What? Oh, sorry, put some stuff yeah, out. Mom, come on, <laughs> put some stuff out. Whatever. Um, I really try to avoid that, and that's also why you know if there's a month or two where um, the spirit isn't moving me. I don't want to force it just because I have to get something out like at a certain time every month or all that. That said, with our newsletter, I suppose there's going to be some expectation of writing more regularly. But I can usually come up. But there I have a lot of freedom. And that's there's less pressure because it's me and you talking. Yeah, and, no, I agree. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, I like that's that. it's different. Right. I mean, that's it's, it has been pleasant 
a pleasant surprise how that hasn't yet <laughs> felt like a burden at all. Yeah, I didn't feel like any of the times we did the back and forth, I didn't feel like it was a chore or something that I had to get out. It was sort of like, hey, I'm talking to Mir, I'm just in written form, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly I feel very fulfilled after a bout of, uh, like a, a, a significant bout of writing. So if if um, if I've written, say, 500 words even, or let's say I'll end up writing a thousand words tomorrow, after that, I'll feel like, wow, I just wrote a thousand words. That's good. That's a day well done. Um, but I, I will also say that I, I, I enjoy the actual process of writing if I feel like I'm I'm in that groove. So, I mean, we'll see if that happens with this essay. It's a it's turned out to be a bit of a struggle, um, but you know, um, I got to write it, and yeah. I got to force myself to write it at some point. You promised it to your fans, after all. <laughs> yeah, the and fans? also to an editor too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying about working out. Working out, I find very hard to do, even though before COVID started, I was trying to work out around twice a week. Yeah. That was a struggle, and I that was about total dedication because yeah. I I hate I hate the feeling of working out. I don't like going to the gym. I don't like um, sometimes like literally when I'm like lifting weights or whatever. I'll think to myself, "This is one of the dumbest things in the history of the universe." I am literally at a place where people are going to lift weights because they want to feel good when I, I suppose in human history, people didn't have gyms. I mean, they fought in wars, I guess. Yeah. And well, they like, yeah. they ran maybe, I don't know. Well, sure. I, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's what I don't know. What I've never experienced is, uh, is that supposed that myth- mythological runner's high, that, that feeling of elation that you're supposed to It's not to real. Get. It's made up. I, I, I'm with you on that. I, I, I've never I did felt winter, it. Yeah, I mean, I did winter track in high school. Yeah. You I never don't know what it? I was thinking. That was terrible. What was I thinking? You never felt um, it. And, I mean, I guess that you can sort of simulate a high whenever you really want to in the sense that if you feel like you should be feeling a high, you can sort of start feeling it. You have to be in the right mindset. But it's not – is it the act of running that creates some – that changes my chemical balance or some endorphin stuff? I, I'm skeptical of some of – I know the science is real. I just don't know if it applies to everyone in the same way. I, I have to say, I mean, I, I've – you know, I've I've felt legitimately nauseous after, after you know, real exertions. I, I had a trainer for a while who was really pushing me because I needed that because uh, both – you know, I, I, I just – you know, I'd run. I I wanted someone to like watch how I was doing weights and everything. And then like I I I hired someone. It's like really just sort of. I said, all right, you know, let's let's see this. I want to see, I want to see what what like you know being pushed and et cetera will do. Maybe I'll maybe I'll experience that. That was part of the experiment for me. Maybe I'll experience that that um that sort of uh, endorphin rush or whatever. I never did. I would I would stagger out of there dizzy often. Um, and, you know, then I was like, well, maybe I have my diet wrong and drink more water, et cetera. Uh, maybe even even if I wasn't just like feeling uh, just so disoriented after those things, it it, it, it was not a feeling of, of happiness. It was a feeling of, of, of just collapse, physical collapse. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, what I think I, I do feel after the fact, even if I feel like a little bit tired or exhausted or whatever, there's really a sense of, having gotten something done, which was really challenging. So independent of any any specific feelings, you sort of do have this realization like, oh my God, this is one of the most difficult things for me to do because I hate going to the gym. And you feel like, wow, I can actually get things done if I really put my mind to it. I do have self-discipline on certain things. And that can be reassuring. And you're like, oh, that I got something done and you can kind of like check it off in your bullet journal or whatever. Mm. Um, but of course, then the question is, why do we feel like we got something done? It's because you're supposed to go to the gym. We don't necessarily know. I mean, okay, so I, you know, I lift weights. Uh, I'm not like I'm not like a you know an expert lifter or anything, but you know, it does help with toning of muscles. You can actually see some of the changes 
after you, you know, you're working out for several months. And before COVID, you know, I would look in the mirror and I'd be like, oh, so, you know, this actually does work to some extent. Yeah. Um, you know, but then the question is, why do we value that? Why do we value our self-image? What what does it matter if my biceps are a little bit more toned or if someone sees my biceps, they'll be like, oh, um, that's cool. Like, <laughs> is that really important at the end of the day? I mean, uh <laughs> yeah, I guess it uh, depends on how you value it. I mean, I I I I just loathed every minute of it and I stopped like maybe like a year and a half ago. Right, and but I, why is any of this stuff important? Like why so No, for okay, me for go, me what, for me Shadi it was it was basically uh I'm getting to be an old man and uh I don't want to be uh you know too sedentary because I'll die early. That literally was oh, yeah. the logic. And then and then I was like, you know, uh not just sort of was like I'm getting a professional to sort of help me to to see me through this stuff. I never felt a sense of accomplishment. I always felt a sense of just complete exhaustion. And you know what else it would do to me? Just like going back to writing. This is the the other part that that that. I mean, maybe to your point about just how these sort of chemicals interact with with uh, different people in different ways. I couldn't get work done after working out. You know, people like they're like, oh, you need to go in the morning, and it just clears your head for the rest of the day. No, it it made me it made me stupid for the rest of the day. Literally, I was dumb the rest of the fucking day. Excuse me, the rest oh. of the day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. and um, and it's it's uh, uh it, it's funny. I don't know. I I I I really wonder if it's it's just some sort of like neuro neurochemical sort of thing that I I never positively reacted to this stuff. So after a while, you know, I was actually timing going to the gym on days that I did not have to actually be productive in any other way because. Mentally, it did me no good. Whereas the common, the received wisdom is, oh my God, after you work out, you're just so clear. Yeah, you can think. I can't, you know, if I don't work out in three days, I, I can't think straight. I'm like, what planet are you from? Yeah. This, is not, this is not me. But, not but the all. gym is good. Yeah, so you're right about the short term. I guess like, obviously, it probably goes without saying, we do think that working out will be beneficial in the long run. Yeah. The problem there is that's some serious delayed gratification if that's the only reason you're doing it. I mean, maybe people start to feel like genuinely better and more healthy like a year into working out or whatever. And I'm sure that happens more at an advanced age. Like when you're in, definitely when I'm in my 40s, I'll want to be I mean, I, I want to get back to working out when COVID um, stops whenever. I mean, I don't know yeah. whenever that is. I'm yeah. not totally comfortable going to the gym right now yeah. indoors. Um because I do feel like, you know, I'm enjoying life. I'm enjoying certain parts of life too much. I mean, the Domino's pizza, which we've talked about. Yes. Um, Gosh, you know, also I, all, as loathsome as working out to me. <laughs> well, you know, um, and, and some people might know that, I, you know, I was I was doing keto for a while before, and then I stopped right when COVID started. So COVID starts. I stopped going to the gym. I stopped e eating keto. I start eating Domino's pizza. Yeah. I order like burgers twice a week. Um, but you can um, still flex biceps on, on, <laughs> on Tinder and it's totally fine. Yeah. So COVID's really changed a lot of things, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll never but, be the um, same again. Wow. This is probably either going to be like a sort of um, a cult classic of the podcast that diehard listeners really get into because – it's the most non-political thing we've done, at least in this first 20 minutes, or it's like the the least popular Wisdom of Crowds episode ever, because people are like, wow, Shadi and Demir had literally nothing to talk about that day. Well, I have plenty to talk about. And I, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's a shame we went on this. I'm, I'm still intrigued as an editor. You know, you mentioned something along the lines of, uh, you know, people on deadline and, you know, you have to write so oftentimes. And, you know, I think for columnists, especially like multi times a week columnists, I think it it is a real challenge. I mean, you look at someone like David Brooks or, or Ross Douthat or, you know, any one of those p other people that I actually don't ever read. Um, uh, it's It's remarkable how frequently they are capable of being interesting, you know, like that many times a week that's it's a it's a remarkable achievement. but you know, as an editor, I have uh I remember early early when i I first started at this sort of stuff, I'm not going to say who it was, but I got a it's like slightly older than me peer journalist i you know thought it was 
uh, really a, a, a quite a smart writer, and he, he owed something to the publication I was working for, um, sent me something that quite clearly he was on deadline. He had promised it. <laughs> he had poured himself a number of glasses of whiskey and just basically torn through this thing. I could I could almost smell the booze like in the the, the mistakes and the kind of weird stream of consciousness thing. How do and you know he was drinking? I don't, but it was just terrible. It was just like it was it was such a mess of a piece. I would never submit that. And this just goes back to I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that 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 you know, you submit that kind of slop. Uh you certainly haven't submitted that kind of slop to me. But you know, it's interesting that you say that that you know, you don't go back because for me, my process of writing is I don't know. I feel like I have to feel really good about it before I can hand it off. You know, I'll 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 share it with a few people for like sanity checks to say, "Hey, is am I did I do something completely insane here? Just you know, can you look at this? Am I any like glaring blind spots or or mistakes? Because that's one of my panics about writing is that like you know I've missed something so obvious and that it's it's right there. So I share it for that. Then I hand it off. And here's what I really am interested in, apart from, you know, your your more comfort at just being able to hand it off. How quickly do you disassociate from your own writing? Like, I find, so I, I submitted something this morning that I had committed to and, and, you know, I more or less made deadline. And I read it this afternoon and I, I wasn't reading myself anymore. What do you, what do you mean you weren't reading yourself? Like... I sort of remembered writing this, but I'm, 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 it's not, it's not me anymore. Like it's, it's, wow, that's interesting. I, I, I disassociate from my writing like pretty quickly. Um, and it, that's the weird thing about it that I find most pleasurable about the writing process is like, I feel it's difficult. I'm getting something out. Like it takes me a good amount of time to work myself up to the state where I can write. I can then write something for a while and then I read it almost as if someone else had read it. Uh, I read it as if someone yeah. else had written it. That's and, interesting, And it, yeah. I'm just sort of disassociated with it. So I don't know. React to any of that. I'm just curious about process. To, to me, this is – you're right. Maybe maybe it's not like uh, mass interest stuff, but I, I'm just always fascinated about how people write and how they relate to this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's actually good to talk about. I mean, so it also depends on the length of the piece. So yeah. um, as you know, I've been working on this book proposal. I'm, I'm doing a revise and resubmit for it, and um, – that I really labored over, and I really wanted it to be perfect, and I thought a lot about structure. I moved things around. I got feedback. That, I mean, so the, st- but the stakes are high with that. I mean, um, you know, uh, I want, you know, I want the book to go forward. I want to be able to sign a contract soon and all that, and I don't want to keep on, you know, revisiting the process endlessly. So, you know, I thought to myself, this is something where it does really pay to be as careful as possible. Um, but if it's like an op-ed, you know, you can't – if 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 every op-ed you're writing, you're going to labor over it and think that there's some ideal of perfection, then it's going to be hard to write those pieces. Now, if it's a longer piece, you want to be, again, more thoughtful about it and all that and put and put the the required time. So it, it just you sort of have to like how how important is this? Um will I have chances to revise it? Will there be other rounds where I can perfect it? Um does the editor want to see it and shape it before, you know, so you also don't want to be too laborious over something when you know the editor wants to have a hand in in formulating it and shaping the argument. I mean, some editors can be more involved like that. Um, I don't think any editors want this. I think editors are forced to do this when they're handed a piece of crap. <laughs> I mean, maybe yeah, I'm wrong yeah. about that. I've never, I've never, I've never really sought that out. You know, I mean, if I'm going to work with someone on it, I, I want to be co-author. I don't want to be shaping necessarily. No, an, I, I, you know, I don't mean like intensely shaping, but you know, guiding the, you know, hey, especially if this, it's a yeah. more like free form kind of thing. You know, I. Um, yeah. I remember that piece I wrote that was, I mean, a couple of pieces I've written recently have been a little bit more um, freeform experimental pieces, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that. And that's where there was some help, you know, in the sense that 
um, they weren't really there wasn't a clear argument and there there probably wasn't a clear argument even after the editor involved himself. But at least he helped push it in a better direction where it was a little bit more cohesive. And and that piece that I have in mind was not meant to have an argument. So when people say Shadi, the piece was really a really interesting meditation. But like, what were you trying to say? And we talked about this before. Yeah, I wasn't say, really when people say when I say, but yeah. <laughs> no, but I was like, yeah, there wasn't there wasn't really an argument because I don't always have something I want to I don't always want to convince the reader of something I want to share with the reader what my thought process is and if they can benefit from bits and pieces and they can learn something about how I you know it's maybe perhaps self-indulgent who knows whatever it gets to some bigger questions about what is the point of writing what is the point of argument is the objective to um, persuade someone to change their view and you know how I feel about this that's not really my goal in writing yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, uh, well, so so before we 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 delve into that, is is your your uh, theory of everything piece that you've now embarked on uh, an experimental meditation or is it an argument? No, it's going to be an argument, um, but it's going to be pretty unwieldy and sprawling. I mean, I want to, I you know, I don't want to build up expectations too much, but mm. I do I do sort of see it if it goes well as being my definitive statement of the on the moment that we're currently living in. Do you ever get worried that like you've bitten off more than you can chew for an essay? Yeah, this probably be true for this one, but um and that's where um yeah, that that'll probably be the case for this one. Oh, so how do you handle that? Do you then do you then like break it up as you do it and cuz again this gets back to the question of how one writes, you know? Um and this is why yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have much insight okay. into how well, I end up doing do you my stuff. This, do you remember this movie um, from a while back by uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, Magnolia? Remember Magnolia? Yes, I remember Magnolia. Sometimes I think to myself, okay, there are articles, and then there are articles like Magnolia. Mm -hmm. Magnolia is a bizarre, out-of-control, wonderful film. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Some people hate it. Yeah, I just hate P.T. Anderson, but, but <laughs> anyway. Some people hate it. So, you know when, like, you're like, wow, this is, I'm really in the zone. This is really going well. And you're, you're like, oh, I can't wait for people to read this. But then you self-combust in the last third of the essay. Mm. And you just lose, you lose your shit, right? Yeah. That's oh, not, I mean, that's what, again. Yeah, that's what happens in the movie, mm. that it's a wonderful movie, but then you're like, this is bonkers for yeah. the entire last third of it. And literally, there are frogs dropping from the sky. Yeah. No, and that, that's not like a literal, that's not like a yeah, rhetorical lyric. Yeah. It's like literally what happens in the movie. Yeah. It's like Paul Thomas Anderson, he's like, I have... This is so out of control. I have all these like ideas and they're building up into this crescendo, but I have no idea what to do to them. So you know what? I'm going to introduce a random plot twist that has no meaning where frogs start falling from the sky. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually Googling as you speak. Wasn't that actually a remake of... <laughs> So I don't think P.T. Anderson even came up with the frogs coming out of the sky, but I can't remember. Maybe I'm making that up. Ah, screw it. That's not important. Yeah, yeah. So if, so if if you guys, if you listeners want to just like search it from now, like if you do Magnolia frogs, and add message shoddy, different... <laughs> message shoddy that P.T. Anderson is not the creative here, that he's just stole someone else's idea. Yeah. Well, Magnolia frogs falling from sky. Yeah, it's. I think it's a reference actually to to the book of Exodus. Yeah. So it's yeah. biblical. It's right. a biblical. So it's um, not just random. Yeah, he's like literally like plagiarizing the Bible. Yeah, but I think he plagiarizes. As one does. But yeah. I think you're allowed to, right? Yeah, I think it's a commandment. Thou shalt plagiarize <laughs> the Bible. Yeah, but um, sometimes I feel to myself, look, and and this just comes down to difference in philosophy. I mean, some people think that every article has to be tight and coherent and well edited. Sometimes you you know and. Sometimes you want to go for Magnolia. You want you want to do the literary equivalent of the frogs. Yeah. I don't think I've ever done that. I've never gone for Magnolia. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see if that happens here. Yeah. 
You, you feel like you might be careening towards a magnolia moment. <laughs> careening towards the abyss. The abyss. The frog-filled abyss. But here's the thing. Like, I, I love it when I see someone – again, I don't want to I, – I, this is going to be way too self-indulgent. I don't want to pretend that I'm an artist uh-huh. and I'm like a painter painting but you'd like to my be, great though. work of art. But you'd like to be. <laughs> You've talked about this. No? Don't you want to be Yeah, a- but look, this is like – this is what we do. Right, and in some sense, it's it's an art form for us. We take it seriously. We value what we do, and we want to also um, we want to be true to our art. I guess. I guess. I, I guess that doesn't capture my my sort of attitude towards all of this somehow. I, I guess you know. I don't know. In general, but I, but I, yeah. But I, but I guess what I mean is that I like it when I'm seeing an artist, and I'm like, wow, I see their personality in this. They just they lost their shit. And they they just did something like bizarre or crazy or very idiosyncratic. I mean, what I, what I love about your essays, Demir, is that there's like the full force of your personality. There's no when you read a Demir piece, you know it's Demir writing it. It couldn't be mistaken for most others. And yet, I disassociate because, with it as soon as it's written, which is weird <laughs> as well. I yeah, mean, I don't know. It is. It's 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 a weird feeling. I mean, literally, I, I was reading this essay. I wrote. I finished it at eight eight a.m. this morning, and. By three, I, I read it over again after I'd already signed off on it, and then I was like, "Huh, okay, all right, interesting." Like, I, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating that. That's, that's, that's. But no one is tempering your voice. Like, it, it is your voice, right? So I guess, I guess, part of the process for me is like managing that, is at least getting that onto the page somehow. Um, yeah. But so I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's, it's convincing anyone, as you said, that that's the point of it. It's certainly not art, though. Not in my mind, anyway. It's more like, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a process of, yeah, I don't know, just sort of capturing a state of thought, right? And it's like it's capturing a state of thought and like a bundle of insights and like a snapshot in time and making it coherent and accessible to someone else, including myself, basically. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, that's where I totally agree. I want I want someone to see what I'm thinking at a particular moment that I'm 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 sharing that with them. And and so in that sense, you want it to be somewhat raw and rambling because if that is an accurate representation of the jumble of your own thoughts, yeah, no, sure. Then that's honest. You know, yeah, yeah. There's something more honest about it. But I think that. Um, there's also this idea of the surgical precision of a well-made sentence that before before it's it's actually going into the world. So let's say you shoot out that first draft, you looked at it very quickly at the end, but then when um, you go through it like one or two rounds with the editor, at the end you're like, okay, I do kind of want this to be perfect because – there is something about a special sentence. If you can like, and you can sort of appreciate that. I appreciate that in the in the writers and authors who have influenced me and who I still enjoy reading to this day. Like one thing I've always appreciated is, wow, like that is some good pro styling right there. That um, that is a well rendered sentence, and I can sort of savor that. I mean, that's what I think a lot of us found so appealing about Christopher Hitchens' writing. I mean, sometimes it would be overwrought yeah. and a little bit um, excessive in its verbosity. But, you know, sometimes there were beautiful sentences and you're like, wow, he's an, this is an artist where I feel like a lot of, um, and this is probably the case, I think, for most um, modern American, current American writers, um, less so with British writers, is that there's nothing distinctive about their prose style. Yeah. And it's hard. You can kind of, you can only know the author through the content, not necessarily through the sentence structure. Yeah. Or, or like the length of sentences. Like a lot of American writers, they write relatively short sentences. I like long, multi clause sentences where the reader gets lost in the sentence. Mm hmm. My editors don't always like that. Yeah, yeah. As an editor, I can tell you. Uh, so I don't, again, I don't remember. I don't remember running into that problem. But you write. You. But I mean, you write long sentences too. I do. I do. I do. I like that though. But I, I, so I I'm, again, that, maybe I'm just weird. No, but that's something I also go back and fix. And it's, it's. I, you know, I've, I, I, uh, I guess you know, if one thing's changed, the older I've gotten is that uh, now within the process of writing, I will end up 
lifting sentences and putting them in different places. Like not after I've finished, like look and rearrange some things, but like in the process of it. Um, and so, you know, coming up with like fun sentences and, and, and nice little sort of, you know, internal, alliter- uh, uh, internal alliterations and other sort of, I don't know what I always think of as sort of jokes, you know, like, yeah, you're just sort of having fun and with the language and sort of amusing yourself and hopefully whoever else is reading it. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm moving those around a lot more than I was as a younger writer. That is to say, like, they'll come to me, I'll put them in a place. I was like, oh, that's a, that works, but it would work better here. And then I move it like two paragraphs while I'm only, you know, four paragraphs ahead of that. So it's like, it's, it's like a constantly iterative process for me at this point, you know? Whereas I, I remember, you know, one of the most sort of, you know, I just like incredible experiences is, um, was watching, uh, you know, when Walter Mead was at, at the magazine, like watching him write and we could watch it because, you know, oftentimes he would just write his essays into WordPress, you know, the content management system for the, for the website. So I'd just go in the back end and you'd see he's in there and you could like preview the thing. So you just sit there and hit refresh and these like incredibly perfectly formed sentences create perfectly structured wow. paragraphs that link to each other and with almost no revision he would do some revision but with almost no revision would come out really well formed and that's not me that's not how i write at all it's it's much more neurotic for me it's just like i'm constantly going back constantly fidgeting with stuff but never never having the stones to like do a single pass of an essay in to like get the ideas down and then refine like i'm refining from from the first word i write well, this doesn't come as a surprise to me, Demir, because, um, you know, I, some of our listeners might be aware of this, but there's been a lot of talk in, in recent weeks that um, you're actually one of the great American essayists of our of our era. Well, thank you, Shadi. I mean, this people have said that. Recur- recurring, recurring humor episode. <laughs> people are saying and some and people I, look, like <laughs> well, as, like when Donald Trump says people are saying it's usually Donald Trump saying it. Exactly. But but also I I um, there has also been talk that you are the greatest Croatian American essayist of the current era. Well, that's more perhaps more appropriate. But you're like, also yeah, not wait, are you wait? You're actually being like, I'm. You're you're admitting that you are the best Croatian American essayist right now. I don't that's know. B- I don't know who what Croatian Americans <laughs> writing. There's not many of us, Shadi. How many Egyptians in the world? There are no, there are a few Egyptian American writers. There yeah. is, there, you know, you know, I'm not the only one. Right, right. Well, how many Egyptians in the world? Period. Never mind oh, Croatian um, Americans. Like, like a hundred million or yeah, something. Yeah, right. There's like four million Croatians. Period. Oh, oh, yeah. I forgot. Yeah, there's barely any of you. Barely any. So there's like five of us, and and that can even. How big even is literate. the Croatian American community? I actually don't know. It's a good question. Um, Do you have any Croatian American friends? No. Really? Huh? Yeah, I, I, I've now, you know, sort of doing more Balkan stuff uh, uh, in the last few years here in D.C. I've sort of reconnected to that, but it's weird. I had another sort of, um, I wouldn't say it's a rule, but I, I never I never fraternized with, with uh, sort of people from the Western Balkans. Um, you know, nothing, not that there's anything wrong with it, but just sort of never, never sought it out and never found real comfort in being able to i don't know just sort of bs with someone in a secret language that no one else knew that said that's changed i mean like it was uh is that i think it was right after in fact after the last episode that we recorded with christine uh you know we we noted in the thing we went to to a birthday party and it was on ben haddad's roof and um i think it was uh one someone's uh, like a journalist at VOA, Ani's coworker at VOA from Bosnia, and I just start BSing with him in Serbo-Croatian and whatever. It's like sort of this that fake familiarity when you you find a stranger and like you know you can speak sort of. And so I don't know. Like three days later, um, I somehow we're talking to Christine again, and 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 she was like, "Yeah, you know, you your friend, you and your friend were like totally." ganging up on me on such and such an issue i said my friend i don't know I, I, it's the first time i met the guy i don't even know his, his name I, I totally like you know didn't didn't write down or anything like that i have no idea so yeah i mean i guess who was it i don't know i, I don't know his name <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. VOA. oh yeah oh, remember it, up there a, a dean yeah yeah that sounds right oh okay well so this is it's interesting because 
it, there's almost this raising of expectations when you find your kin somewhere. Right. So it's awful. They almost like, so when I run into an Egyptian, they expect that we're going to start bonding. Yeah. And I immediately don't like that. they want to have like a conversation and have like shared in jokes and like you guys are like part of this special group of people. Yeah. And I imagine that's the case for a lot of somewhat nationalistic cultures I mean, there is this kind of Egyptian pride where we say that we are Umadunya, the mother of the world, and right. all this stuff. Right. And, you know, Egyptians are known, I don't know if it's true, for being some of the funniest people on earth. I mean, that's not been my experience, but um, yeah. it is said. It is said. And people that is are what saying. It, people are saying this. And, you know, it's so especially like, – also, when you get like an Egyptian Uber driver and they realize you're Egyptian – then they want to like talk about Egyptian politics, and I, you know, I can talk about Egyptian politics, but because, you know, that can be a very divisive issue. So it's sort of like, oh, you know, Sisi's really doing a good job, and you're like, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, why would you he, ever be the, honest about that though? And then, like, he, and then, he, then like the, Uber, the Egyptian Uber driver is like, oh, um, what did you think about the Muslim Brotherhood under Mohammed Morsi? Yeah, and then like, wait, do I, you know? Um, I, I'm, also- I'm never honest with people like that. If people are like, oh, my God, you know, uh, woke revolution is the greatest thing. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. And if, like, you find some, like, Trumpy driver is just like, oh. Yeah. You're and like, I'm like yeah. oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, whatever. I don't I don't care. <laughs> I mean, that's just more generally like cab drivers. It's like this. That is that's another annoying false sense of intimacy that is just like, I don't know who you are. So I'm just going to yeah. guess you the whole time. I don't care. Yeah, and it's like we're not like we're not going to be friends. Yeah. <laughs> Unless hey. unless your cab driver is called Muhammad, <laughs> deep cut. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wait, did we talk about that on an episode I don't before? Remember. I don't remember. Yeah, but that was yeah. your your best point on Twitter. We'll put that in the show notes too. People can figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also have a complex relationship with my identity and culture, as I'm sure a lot of us do. You know, and part of it too. You know, it's it's hard. It's hard for me. You know, it. it it hurts what happened to Egypt. It hurts. Yeah. And um, I don't always like talking about it because I don't want to go back through that history and and be, remo- you know, um, and I, I saw something really dark there, you know, and, mm. and, and, and you know, I, I think I've, I've mentioned this here and there on different episodes, but, you know, the military coup in July 2013 and then the, the massacre that happened a month later worst mass killing in modern Egyptian history. Yeah. I mean that th- does that affect how I view my country of origin? Inevitably it does. I mean I can't I can't totally remove that from the history and pretend that people I know weren't implicated in supporting that massacre including relatives and friends and people I knew. I mean it's not this abstract thing. Right. I mean you see you see when you see a kind of national hysteria, when you see people really losing their humanity, and then you wonder what that says about—I mean, culture is not static, and there is no such thing as there's no there's no reason to essentialize culture, or say that anything is inherently wrong with the people. But is there something wrong with a group of people in a particular country, and their numbers are large? Yes, sometimes that happens. Yeah, I talked and, a little bit about that though, about like sort of that that that. Uh mass hysteria i mean you know it's it's i mean it's it's a it's a it's a nasty leap from you know to sort of start talking about these things in in moral terms and it's 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 difficult but there is something there's something very human about that too right and without being exculpatory about it it there's something there's something very human about about these kinds of political movements and this kind of you know about politics taking on these sorts of uh, valences that turn violent it's, and bloody, right? I mean, in some ways, it's one of the more universal things in human history. I mean, yeah. every, every culture and people has fallen to some sort of hysteria where they do terrible things to their fellow countrymen. Um, you just hope that there's less of it in the in the present day. Of course, this gets back to the issue of progress. Are, are you know are we in some ways better where now we don't have to fall into this mass hysteria? Um, I think part of it, too, is that it came so quickly after a moment of hope that I had been in Tahrir Square and seen a revolution. You know, I was right there, and it was a beautiful moment. It was a special moment. I saw Egyptians really, you know, they were, they were, they felt that they were taking 
some level of control over their own lives and they were experiencing something they hadn't experienced before. And there was a goodness there that I saw. And of course, because I associate um, freedom and agency and democracy with goodness to some extent, maybe it's not always the way it is, but, you know, so you see these very positive attributes um, and you see people happy in some fundamental way. And I remember actually the night that Mubarak fell, I was writing something, I think for the Brooklyn's website, maybe somewhere else. And I was in a coffee shop. And to get to the coffee shop that I wanted to write from, um, we were, I was taking a cab through different parts of Cairo. And there were people dancing and singing and cheering. And they were gathering. And there was a kind of joy. You saw Egyptians being joyful. And I think that I never really associated that kind of joyfulness with Egyptians. You know, growing up and spending summers there and living, you know, a year and a half or two years over the course of over the course of my life, um, you know, I don't remember seeing that that yeah. joyfulness. Yeah. And then to see how that joyfulness could so quickly turn into something darker. I mean, that was a hard thing for me to fully absorb, and because it was like whiplash. How I mean, it's not did Egyptians change? Did their moral um, composition change just in the span of two and a half years? Obviously, I mean, maybe in some ways, but that's not really. It tells us something about the fluidity of these emotions and that, you know, not to indulge in cliche, but, you know, every human person to some extent um, includes good and bad. And unfortunately, you know, the badness came out. um, And, you know, some of it is that, you know, moments of political stress and also the experience of living under a dictatorship, I do feel, and I, I, I've argued this, so I'm not, you know, hesitant to say it, but does it have a distorting effect on human nature, on the human, on the human person, where we become less of who we are and who we're meant to be as a result of living under repression for many years or many decades? I do believe that. That doesn't mean Egyptians are uniquely bad, but has the experience of authoritarianism um, from, from the, you know, pretty much from modern independence onwards um, has been almost continuously authoritarian, sometimes very stark levels of, of repression. Does that distort Egyptians and Egyptian culture and Egyptian political culture? Yes. Wait, but can unpa- it change? But can it change? Yes, it can change. But, but hold on, you know, uh, I, I, I guess I, I, I lost you in one point there, maybe, Presumably, some of our, our, our listeners might have as well. Uh, the change, um, the people who were celebrating, um, and then the people who supported, uh, you know, uh, the coup, one and the same people, or many I, of them were. Yeah, many of them I were. Mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't know exactly the the, the number. But that's of what you're talking about. I mean, yeah. never mind numbers. It's that it's that on the one hand, people felt. This joy, and then the same people were supporting the counter revolution. There were certainly some of those, yes, and I, yeah. you know, I, I know and that's some and that's yeah. what you're conflicted about that that people would 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 pivot on something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, um, I mean, have you you know in your in your excavations and 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 um, investigations on this? I understand it. Have you yeah. have you have you have you like done? Have you had these sort of intense interviews with people that say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I under, you know. Um, some of it was was quite literally within the family. I mean, my um, in the lead up to the massacre, I was there until August twelfth, two thousand thirteen. The massacre happened two days later on August fourteenth, uh, mm. and I was having these conversations a week or two before the massacre happened with my with friends and relatives, and especially my relatives. Um, and they were very charged conversations, and we all knew that the we all knew that something was going to happen, and there was something very weird about being in this state of suspension where everyone knows that an unspeakable act is about to happen, but no one quite knows when or how or how bad it will actually be. Now, I think it turned out worse than a lot of us expected. I think, well, you know, if maybe you know, if two hundred people were killed in broad daylight in one day. That might have been something that we get or, you know, uh, it's crazy that you you start to talk about like what what's a level of killing that is something you expect versus levels of killing that are a surprise. Yeah. A thousand people, you know, that's more than I think people would have predicted. But of course, um, the very fact that 
we knew it would happen. We knew that there would be loss of life, but we could just be like, you could just talk about it in a social setting with people you know. There's also something dehumanizing about that. There's something weird about that. Yeah. Um, but I understand it. And like in my in my academic work, I do try to not give short thrift to um, why some people decided to support mass killing. Yeah. Because then, you know, I don't think it's helpful to just condemn. I mean, that, that goes back to my philosophy and everything that I do. I mean, this was, to me, an unspeakable act. That was one of the worst things that I could have imagined people I know supporting. But my job as an analyst, when I'm writing academically or, or, or writing in a more from a more analytical standpoint, I think it's important to shed light as to how this came to be. It didn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, There were a set of things that led to this particular moment in time. Yeah. And otherwise good human beings are capable of supporting evil things. I mean, we know I mean, there's been a lot of literature on this. We know this. Right. Um how and and you know, I think that it can seem foreign to many of us Americans because we're not used to that level of primal bloodlust, but that's been a fairly regular thing in a lot of other parts of the world for even as recently as I don't know the 1940s, the 19, but even like Bosnia and Kosovo. Oh yeah, sure. Um, as you know, in Europe, in the heart of Europe, as recently as well, uh, the heart. I don't know, small intestine. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the small intestine of Europe. So look, I mean, we can, we all know that this happens. We all know that that people can support terrible things. Um, it's an interesting moral question as to what that tells us about their moral state. Well, you know, I mean, what's interesting, what's interesting to me is that, I, you know, I, and again, this is, this is the heart of our podcast. See, listeners, you just stick through all the BS about working out. You get to good stuff. <laughs> but like it's at the heart of our, 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 uh, our uh, dynamic, and I don't know, disagreement, whatever, is that, is that, you know, I mean, I agree with all of that. I, I'm, I'm always puzzled, however, that, um, your takeaway is uh, a fundamentally much more moral one than mine in the sense that my takeaway from even just hearing you speak and, you know, being woefully underinformed about, uh, about even, even recent Egyptian history, um, is one of, uh, in fact, just like not judging, which is in fact, it's one, it's more of a, a state where I look at America and I say, as I've said before, this idea of like, my goodness, this works despite all of this somehow, because because given everything, it shouldn't work. Given everything I know about human nature, it shouldn't work. And and it's it's an acceptance of that's kind of basic like fact of human nature. I mean, sure, bloodlust. I, I, I think that's not the right way to put it, but it's it's call it deep insecurity and uh, uh, an, an appreciation and a sense of that deep insecurity that leads people to support all sorts of things, that leads people to fall in behind all sorts of initiatives, that leads people to justify to themselves and perfectly coherently in ways that are, that are completely consistent within one's own sense of self-worth and the rest of it. And so, you know, I... Yeah, sure. I think this 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 leads me to be more um I don't know what, like um condemnatory, less condemnatory, less uh I don't think you're judgmental. That's not right because you're you're no, similarly I, not judgmental. But do you know what I mean? Like I I as a result though, I I I see the world as a much more tra well, I I feel like you see the world as a tragic place too. And yet and yet the di the difference somewhere shoddy is that is that uh and maybe it's the religious core is that I I I I accept the world in those terms and I'm surprised if things go better and I'm annoyed if people assume that things will go better than that. I guess that's like my yeah, look, point. I, yeah, so there is definitely a tension in my own thinking. I mean, I guess at some fundamental level I don't want it to be this way. The world is tragic, but I don't want it to be tragic. And I want to I want to fight against that current of tragedy. I mean, some of it's also personal that, um, you know, I really, there, is there a part of me that wants the Middle East to be significantly better? 
Yeah. Yes. And does that is that completely unrelated to the fact that I'm of Arab and Egyptian origin? No. Yeah. I mean, I that said, if I was some random white dude, maybe I'd care just as much, and I don't know. Um, but, but, I mean, do you do you have a certain attachment to a place? Uh, I saw Egypt as kind of my home away from home, my second home, if you will. I had a kind of attachment to it. Did you did I, you did you did you spend time in Egypt before this? Would you go back as a child? Like yeah, yeah, we would it? usually go in summers. I lived there for a year when I was four. Oh, we're actually uh, pretty similar remember. that way, but like no, no more than like a year, right? No, yeah, no yeah. more than a year. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and I and I never I never uh, I wasn't there at all during you know the times of troubles back in the Balkans. I was I was comfortably comfortably ensconced uh, on Long Island watching. I remember watching the um, the what you call it the the market mortar attack in Sarajevo and just seeing just yeah. you know body parts and blood all over the place. But but uh, you know and then hearing stories from family. You know my dad actually went uh, using his UN papers behind sort of you know uh, occupied Serbian lines and rescued my great aunts uh, with the help of a guy who's actually here in Washington D.C. Long story, really interesting, but. Mm-hmm. Um, uh yeah i mean you know at the same time yeah it's funny getting back to the question of sort of how do you, how one relates to one's compatriots i i i've said this to you before i feel like my personal pose uh to the balkans has always been that when i'm there i'm kind of an american and then when I'm here, I've always been this like weird Slavic dude from, you know, the Balkans, right? So it like, I've always had this comfortable distance from wherever I'm at. And I, I mean, maybe that's my, my sort of like, you know, blankie that keeps me, that keeps me intellectually and like morally secure is that like, I just, I have this built in distance to everything. So, yeah, so I, I, I have like a yeah. sympathy towards like, you know, where I'm from and language has a big part of it. And I've been going back there summers and et cetera. And, you know, obviously uh, it ain't easy to watch what people do to each other uh, for whatever cause, uh, especially if you're familiar with the region and, you know, you're familiar with places and you see the destruction when you come back in the aftermath and the rest of it. But it's it's that distance is always built in somehow. Yeah, yeah. And, you me. know, I. For me, that's yeah, all. Presumably yeah, presumably you're not. Yeah. Not always. I, I, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so here, here's an example, too. I mean, um, so there, there's a, a senior Muslim Brotherhood official who actually just died today. Hassan mm. Larian is his name. I knew him. So, um, you know, he was someone I interviewed. And for my first, for my um, PhD dissertation, but also then for my for my first book, um, and you know it's weird. There's something weird and disembodying a little bit about someone who you knew dying presumably prematurely. I, I don't know the full details about what happened, although the Egyptian regime is trying to spin it in a particular way. But he died in prison, mm. and um, not not super old. He was born in fifty four. Okay. So, uh, fifty four means what? What does that mean? Well, that means like so, oh yeah, mid sixties. Yeah, than me. so yeah, mid sixties. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Wait, twelve years older than you? Well, no, wait. 54? No, wait. Come on, Demir. Fifty four. Oh yeah, 20, no, he's, years, twenty years older than me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, Demir. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Age comes at you quick. Go on. Yeah, but then like all these figures that you would interview. So I, I interviewed also. Uh, I got to know not not particularly well, but I interviewed him a couple of times. Mohammed Morsi, the former, mm. obviously former president of Egypt during the Arab Spring, uh, died last year. The first elected president, all that of the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, um, it's weird. First of all, it's kind of unusual and slightly surreal to have gotten to know someone before they became the president yeah. of a pretty big populous country. Yeah. Um, an important country, at least, you know, for some people, Egypt. That's weird. But then also that he died because there was a coup and then he got, you know, was pretty much like, um, you know, doomed to life in prison. Yeah. Um, so, um, so there's... 
you know, you try to get your head around all this stuff, and then at some, at the end of the day, you're like, oh, well, these are also real people. They might have been terrible politicians. They might have been immoral or bad people in various ways, and people can debate all that. But there's also like a human cost that we're talking about here, and that, you know, a generation of Egyptians, tens of thousands of people who will have graduated from prison and their lives will be forever affected by that experience. The tens of thousands more who are stuck in exile, many of whom I also, you know, know in Istanbul and other places who I also interview for my work. You know, it's a, it's a lot of families torn apart, a lot of a lot of human beings affected at a at a profound level and they'll, they'll never be the same again. I mean, there's just something kind of sad about that. No, oh, I mean, I, 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 I'd never, I'd never quibble with, yeah, yeah. with the inherent sadness of something <laughs> yeah. like that. It's just that you know, I, it's, 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 uh, it's the default in so many ways. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's it just, but I guess it didn't have to. So there's a sense of regret and lo- like it didn't have to be this way. I can imagine counter histories, counterfactuals, alternative ways of imagining the Middle East where this didn't happen. And then you you look back at the moments, the week leading up to the coup, and I could, we thought, we didn't, first of all, we didn't think it would turn out this way at the time, but there were all these competing histories that could have happened if certain individuals had made different choices at different moments. A lot of this history is contingent. Like nothing had to be the way it was. Yeah. I mean, I I uh I think I think counterfactual history is interesting and important, but I I I always sort of maybe assume that when things work out the way they did that in fact uh there was a preponderance of like it's not everything's so contingent. That is to say there's a there's there's always a a preponderance of of reason and that reason is is human nature why things turn out as bloodily and terribly as they do and that yeah contingency is obviously there and at any one point you can always imagine the 5000 different decisions that could have like been taken a different way but that you know the any any set of affairs is the way it is because because humanity and therefore that's why i i generally end up taking sort of I don't know, um, foreign policy and international affairs that seriously. And, and I approach it from the invert inverse way from the way you approach it, which is, which is not let's figure out how we can build a better world. This is not to say that we oughtn't try to, if there's an opportunity to improve things, but it's to assume that things will naturally go to shit, like will naturally lead to the worst possible outcome. So, Prudent statecraft is is avoiding so. Why can't that. we stop it though, Demir? If that if that is the natural course, and there is one country that has the ability to intervene and prevent those worst case outcomes, why can't that country do that? Well, I mean, because it's tried several times, I think, in in recent in recent memory, and and made a hash of it. So let's uh, do better. Okay, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, this this <laughs> this goes back to while in our discussions, it's like uh, you know. Why? Why are we so bad at it? Uh, it's not. It's not just a matter of will. I think it's a. Uh, these things are very difficult. So yeah, I mean, again, you know, I as we had that that discussion about human rights, how probably a year ago now. Well, no, we just started this about like a little more than a year ago, but but you know, probably like six months ago, and we're discussing Libya and and uh, and all of that. I don't have a any kind of uh, weird moral case against, uh, you know. Uh, preventing genocide i i my my case is one of um a knowledge and uh that we should always keep in mind is in fact how circumscribed our knowledge is of any one situation and uh the kind of lift it's going to take to actually create a better society now again, you know, if you remember in those discussions, I, I granted you. It's like okay, if if we know that a genocide's about to happen, and all it takes is to say, you know, destroy all of Assad's uh, helicopters and ground them, and then just leave it at that, and we're comfortable just leaving it at that, and the geopolitical 
you know, implications of just leaving it at that are something we're fine with. Yeah, I, I, I don't have any sort of case against you. Um, I just think that 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 in the the frame of world betterment, a lot of bullshit gets smuggled in. Well, look, a I lot don't... of a lot of a lot of wishful thinking gets smuggled in, and and uh, and a lot of belief about uh, our ability to create societies. It's 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 not create societies, but in fact, even to improve societies. Um, I, it, I I'm, I'm deeply skeptical of it. Yeah. I well, I don't want a better society. I just want a society. Okay. So for me, it's about prevent. Like, I <clears throat> I've moved to a, a pretty minimalistic view. I just I don't want there to be egregious repression or mass killing. People can do whatever the hell hell else they want, and that's why. Well, maybe it is asking a lot to say that countries should. Um, be somewhat democratic and people should be able to have agency and choice and select their leaders and all that. But after that, as long as they have those those basic rights, I'm willing to kind of like leave them be. Um, I just don't because I believe because I believe that repression has such a distorting effect on the human spirit and the human person. For me, it's more of a you know, um, intervening to prevent that rather than some kind of affirmative vision of what society should be or what it can be. Yeah. Um, well, that just gets back to the sort of religious question. I mean, I note again that, that our friend Christine sort of talked about uh, human potential or I forget what words she used, but sort of in similar terms, um, you know, it wasn't dignity. I forget. I don't know. Just go back and listen, yeah. dear listeners, what, what she was saying. But but it's... it's uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I don't start from that premise um, of, of some kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, human potential. Um, I don't even know if it's human potential. It's just humans being able to live without fear of but what, being I, killed by the government's forces. Okay, but, you know, again, that's a, that's a very modern conception <laughs> you've got there. Wait, I mean, but is that asking that much? I mean, I'm. It's. It's. You said you want society. I mean, I. I think it. It begs a lot of questions about about what is a society and how do you build it. I don't think you have the answers to it. You. You don't think I have the answers to it? Well, you might, but I don't think <laughs> we as a as as America do anyway. All right, Shadi, we've been at this for a good good long while. This has been fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're like I'm done with this. I'm not yeah, done with Shady, this. Like seriously, man. You want to go another half hour? We can go another no, half no, hour. No. But wait, are we doing the bonus Patreon or not? Yeah, we probably should do the bonus Patreon. Wait, are we supposed to do that every week? I'm supposed to. Who's who's who's? Uh, no, but is that like what we promised our, our Patreon members? I just think that it's one of those things that the more we do it, the 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 richer we're going to be. Content. With all those all those Patreon members. Yeah, how about this? Like, why don't we do, I don't know if I can do a long one. Why don't we do like a nice, short and sweet little bonus Patreon episode right now? All right, let's do it. Okay. See, see you, regular listeners. <laughs> Later, bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>